This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Hello? Reverend Johnson, this is Jonathan Master calling. Yes. Is this still a good time for us to have our conversation? Yes, very much so. Make sure to keep listening after the program to find out how to receive a free MP3 download from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm delighted to welcome as our guest today, pastor and author Terry Johnson. Reverend Johnson is Senior Minister of Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia, and he's authored a number of books, including one entitled Contemporary Worship, Thinking About Its Implications for the Church, and that's our subject for today. So, Reverend Johnson, thank you for joining me. You're very welcome. Now, we're recording this in 2015. That's our contemporary year and setting, but you have some pretty significant criticisms or questions about contemporary worship. So let's start with definitions. What do you mean by contemporary worship? What is it that you're questioning? It's it's not simply public worship done today. So so what do you mean by that? Well, I mean um, worship that is um, embracing the cultural forms that are pop that is popular today so that in terms of music and format and language there's an attempt to embrace popular culture um, I think the conviction being I think nobly uh, motivated um, um, the conviction being that that this is the way that we make Christianity accessible to people. We we use familiar forms and familiar language, um, and that um, opens a door for for um, understanding. There, it, it it enhances receptivity when we use that which is familiar and friendly to people, and consequently. Contemporary worship looks quite different than, you know, what preceded it. If you if you go to 1980 and you go to a typical Protestant church, it's not much different um, than what had been going on um, for 300, 400 years. Um, you know, I'd 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 need to nuance that because I think revivalism had quite an impact on the way churches worship. So uh, that's my caveat for that. But but uh, essentially, you know, the services were familiar. The hymnody was familiar. Um, the time given to prayer, the kinds of prayers, the um, the structure and flow of the service would have been. Familiar. If you go, if you go to 1980 and you stepped into a Presbyterian church, a Methodist church, Congregational church, um, a Lutheran church, and in a sense even an Anglican church, that you know there was a lot of familiarity. Um, the Lord's Prayer being used, the uh, the creed being recited, the use of the doxology or the Gloria Patri or both. Thank. Commandments might have been in the service, or at least in the communion service. So there's a lot of um, um, a lot of overlap, and and um, it's consistent. There's a kind of a consistency between you know the the churches and and with uh, with the, the previous 
several hundred years of history. But contemporary worship um, has a very different feel to it. So even if um, even if we were to grant that and say that's right, there was this this sea change that we've seen in the last 30, 35, 40 years. Um, what's what is it that's that's wrong with trying to use the idioms of the day to communicate uh, biblical truths? Well, I think there's there's a lot of problems with it, and that's what the that's what the you know the booklet is all about. Um, using the idioms of the day, which idioms of the day, contemporary idioms, but they come in so many different forms. So inevitably, what you end up doing is you end up targeting a certain slice of the demographic. Um, so it might be Saddleback Sam, for example, you know, who's um, who's a middle class, upper middle class, white collar, educated, like soft rock music and so forth. I mean, there's even a picture of him in the Purpose Driven Church. There's a picture of Saddleback Sam. Here's exactly the guy that we want to reach. Well, that's not the neighborhood. Uh, it has, a, has many different types of persons in it. But no, we're going to reach Saddleback Sam, a, a certain kind of person within the community. You see, in the old days, it would have been you, 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 hand, you, you put out your shingle as a church, and you try to reach everybody in your community. Now, that, that may have been the, that it was a very limited community in terms of the kinds of people that were there. Maybe it was all Italian-Americans in that community or Irish-Americans or you know, a, a slice of the demographic. But still, you were trying to reach everybody in that community. Well, that's not what's happening now. Now we're trying to reach a select, select, uh, selective type of person within the community so that then because we're targeting that person that's where our outreach uh, is directed then then we end up with a church made up of that kind of person so, so, so we end up with a church that's all the, the cowboy church has been a very cl- clarifying development I think if you have a cowboy church who do you think ends up being in your church people who love cowboys people who are cowboys Anybody that's not a cowboy or a lover of cowboys doesn't go to that church. They don't belong. That church is not for them. So that's what we've done is we've taken we've taken contemporary culture and its um, you know many layered manifestations, and so we're pitching our ministry toward a group, young people, hip hoppers, skateboarders, you name it, and so our church ends up made up of 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 one kind of person and alienating everyone else in the process. Now they don't they don't mean to be alienating, but you know, it was like um you know, it was like one older person said to me when their church changed overnight uh and everything was different and the the you know, the the organ had been boxed up and the choir was gone and um, the windows had been blacked, blackened out, and there was a praise band up front, and they were singing completely unfamiliar music. That older person said, they're driving off the old people. All they want is young people. Well, that's not what they meant to say, but that's what they were saying. So so is it more the marketing um, kind of mindset that, that infiltrates this this kind of approach? That is that is that really the the nub of the criticism that now we're trying to market it at a certain group of people, a certain subset of people, really self-consciously? Right, all right. That's one criticism, uh, one of many. Um, When you look at the New Testament, and let's say the Apostle Paul's letter uh, uh, to Titus, 
Uh, he addresses the young men and the older men, the young women and the older women. In 1 Corinthians, it's the singles and it's the marrieds. In uh, Ephesians 6, it's, it's parents and children. They're all in the same church. They're all sitting out there in the same congregation. What we have today with the contemporary worship movement, we have churches filled up with young people and um, older wannabes who like to be connected with young people. Hanging on to, people who are hanging on to their youth and want to be hip and cool along with all the young people. But um, you end up with all young people in these churches because it's their culture. Now, on what basis do we preference one slice of the community over any other? Why would we favor the youth? Why would we favor the cowboys? Why would we favor one group? The only solution, I think, which is the historic solution and the way that the church presented its ministry in the past was the church has its own culture. Nobody owns the culture of the church. It's got its own music, and that's found in the hymnal. It's got its own language, and that's the language of the Bible. And it's got its own format. It's a gospel-driven gospel logic driven format that moves from praise to confession to uh, thanksgiving to utilization of the means of grace um, but um, that's uh, what what we're doing today is is contrary to this and consequently we don't have churches with young and old with rich and poor with singles and marrieds with parents and children we're segregated in ways that are um, as David Wells says, at loggerheads with the church building that we find in the New Testament. They weren't divided up according to worldly categories. So that's, and this is just one criticism among several, is that the way that we are building churches today is contrary to the pattern that we find in the New Testament, and it is segregating us and dividing us according to worldly categories that the New Testament would not recognize. You know, Galatians 3.28, in Christ there's neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, neither Greek nor Jew. We're all one in Christ, and that means we're all one in the same church. We're not preferencing one group over the others, and the way that we avoid preferencing them is that we recognize the church has its own culture, its own language, and its own sacred music tradition, and it doesn't belong to anyone, so it belongs to everyone. That's the irony of it. So, so what should we keep in mind when thinking about public worship? You talked about uh, traditions that are, that are within the church, but obviously there are new songs being written that I, I, I think you wouldn't put in the category of all that you're describing. So, so, so what should we keep in mind when thinking about public worship, or perhaps even for people who are involved in leading public worship? Well, you know, in education, they talk about the, the Western canon. There's a, a canon of literature that these are the greatest works that have stood the test of time, that have had the greatest influence, that are the most important. Well, I think in a similar way, we can talk about a, a musical canon. And it's found in good hymn books, where the best music and the best lyrics have been put together. Um, that's an evolving um, canon. Additions are made by every generation. Um, and slowly the canon grows, and over time some things are deleted, some things are added. Um, but, but I think what that means is that um, newer things get 
tested um, uh, and eventually would be added over time they would be at it and in more informal settings we might experiment with these but that in, when the church gathers together the, it would primarily be with uh, in, in the area of music it would pr primarily we would be utilizing that which that which the church uh, in in its genius has created uh, the hymn book is a, is a treasure chest of, of beautiful music and richly devotional lyrics, um, that we would not be utilizing that, uh, that we would be instead preferring uh, music and lyrics that are, are doubtful. It's doubtful that they will, they will uh, be around in a decade or two. I mean, Charles Wesley wrote, what, 5,000 hymns? Yeah, a tremendous of, number. Uh, yeah. Of which maybe 1%, maybe 50 at best, 50, right, right. In, a, in, in a given hymn book. I mean, and he would probably be represented more than any other single songwriter. But I think if you think in terms of that ratio, most of what is being written today will not stand the test of time. It's generationally driven. It's, it's time sensitive. It's, it's not, it won't transcend the present moment. Whereas what's in the hymn book has. It has appealed across cultures. It has appealed across generations. Um, it has been able to transcend the moment and the culture of which it originated and has been embraced by the whole church. Uh, today, instead, we are embracing um, um, uh, music and lyrics that are of inferior quality. Uh, now, the other thing I would want to mention in all this, though, and pr probably the decisive cr criticism is the devastating decline in biblical content because the forms of contemporary worship are not able to accommodate um, substantial scriptural content. And the reason that they're not able to accommodate them is because um, they are calculated to make an immediate appeal, as is the case with popular culture. It's like, uh, it's like fast food. It, it, it has an immediate appeal However, it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't have enduring qualities. It, it doesn't um, it, it's uh, it's lacking in enduring nutrition. Well, that's what I think. What we have with contemporary forms, uh, and consequently, we have this tragically declining biblical content in contemporary worship service. You have less being read, hardly any being read at all. Less being preached. We've gone from expository preaching to topical preaching, addressing felt needs so that the preacher is more like a life coach than a minister. Less is being prayed. In fact, there's hardly any prayer at all in most of these contemporary um, worship services. Very little prayer because it's not seeker-friendly. It's, it's not exciting. It doesn't have an immediate appeal to people. It's thought to be boring. So less scripture read, less preached, less prayed, and then the, the music is typically repetitious, um, uh, emotion-driven, um, and, and repetitious, and hence there, it just cannot, it doesn't have the capacity to accommodate the content. So this is why I say this is not just a matter of style. We're talking about biblical content. And if I can repeat myself from a previous um, interview, does faith come by hearing the word of Christ and you're going to take Bible content out of the worship service? I mean, if you were to measure the trajectory over the last 30 years, say going back to 
1985 or 40 years and, and were able to graph the trajectory in terms of biblical content, you would see an extraordinary decline in the biblical uh, doctrinal content of what uh, uh, of the typical worship service. Little scripture read, little prayed, little preached, little sung, and the sacraments relegated to the mid midweek and, and, and rarely administered. Um, so what this means in the long run, um, you know, I think it means ecclesiastical catastrophe. That, that's what I would say. Um, if, if God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, if it's the sword of the Spirit, and we're blunting its point and, and its edge and even removing it from our public assemblies. So if I, if I can further footnote that, I mean, when does ministry take place with the majority of our people? Now, I think we're kidding ourselves if we think it's happening any other time than Sunday morning. But that's where we get most of our people. Any other time of the week is exotic in comparison to the, those who show up on Sunday morning. Well, if we're not ministering the word there as it's read, preached, sung, prayed, and seen in the sacraments, we're not reaching them. I mean, in our congregation, we get half the congregation back for Sunday. You, you move to midweek, that percentage is going to plunge. In almost every church, how many? You take even these seeker-friendly churches that have big midweek programs, and you look at it. They got twenty thousand people on Sunday. They got two thousand people involved in their small groups. Look at the numbers: two thousand people in small groups. That's wonderful. There's eighteen thousand who aren't. So, primarily, ministry takes place in the public assembly when the church gathers on the Lord's day. That's how it's meant to be. Scripture's being read. It's being, we're being exhorted from the Scripture. It's, it's filling the content of our prayers and of our praises. We're seeing it, be, the, the visible word in the sacraments. That's happening on Sunday. Sunday morning, Sunday night. Um, if it's not happening there, um, for most of our people, it's not happening at all. So I have great uh, fears about where the evangelical Christian world is going in America in the long run. Reverend Johnson, we're, we're close to the, the end of our time, but, but I wanted to ask you just one last more personal question. You talked about the canon of great hymns and the, the importance of the hymnal. I'm wondering if you could just share with our listeners two or three of your very favorite hymns um, as you have sung them together in your congregation, and I know also at times in your home. And so what, what, what are the two or three that, that you go to again and again? Um, I think that probably your listeners would know of Holy, 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 um, and Luther's A Mighty Fortress Is Our God, and Oh, Worship the King, Robert Grant's paraphrase of uh, Psalm 104, um, praise, um, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation would be another. Praise my soul, the King of heaven would be another. And then the evangelical hymns, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Isaac Watts. Another Isaac Watts hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Um, o sacred head now wounded, sometimes attributed to Bernard of Clairvaux, a medieval uh, theologian from the 12th century. Um, uh, Rock of Ages by Augustus Toplady. Um, the evangelical hymns are, you know, just wonderful. Um, 
Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, coming out of the Welsh revivals. Um, a great uh, hymn prayer for guidance. And then uh, the Psalms, Hallelujah, Praise Jehovah, the metrical version of Psalm 146. is It's a fantastic. Psalm 145, another great psalm of praise sung to Duke Street. Uh, Duke Street, uh, the tune reminds me of Jesus shall reign wherever the sun, another Isaac Watts hymn. Uh, that was his paraphrase of, of Psalm 72. So those would be, you know, among the among the favorites um, in, uh, for me and for our congregation, and many, many others. In fact, I in the family worship book, um, we have 60 hymns and 60 psalms that I think are just the you know the very top, the very best of the Christian tradition mm-hmm. that I think every family should know. Well, as you were going through that list, I I was almost tempted to break into song, but uh, we'll spare our listeners that. But I, I I do appreciate your time today talking about this. Uh, a lot to think about, and the book is contemporary worship thinking about its implications for the church. Reverend Johnson, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Theology on the Go, a podcast of placefortruth.org. Place for Truth wishes to be thoughtful and accessible and is based on the conviction that the gains of the Protestant Reformation retain their potency and ought to be maintained for the health of Christ's church. Just for listening, we'd like to equip you with free resources. Visit placefortruth.org to find a link to those resources. And listen next time to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.